This content is for institutional investors and information purposes only. It does not contain investment, financial, legal tax or any other advice and should not be relied upon for this purpose. The materials are not tailored to your particular personal and or financial position. If you require advice based on your specific circumstances, you should contact a professional advisor. Opinions expressed are those of the speakers as of the date of publication, are subject to change without notice and do not necessarily reflect Mercer's opinions. Hello and welcome to Critical Thinking, Critical Issues. I'm Andrew Bailey, a principal in Oliver Wyman's government and public institutions team based in the UK. I work across Marsh McLennan, bringing together the expertise of all of our businesses, that's Marsh, Guy Carpenter, Mercer and Oliver Wyman, to support governments in managing the protection gaps associated with systemic and catastrophic risks. And of course, in the context of this COP Focus podcast series, we're particularly interested today in those risks that are affected by the changing climate. I'm joined today by Julian Nwigzi, CEO of Europe for Guy Carpenter. He is also the global head of public sector for Marsh McLennan's Risk Solutions, and among other roles, was previously CEO for Poolry, the UK's terrorism risk pooling entity. Julian, welcome. Thanks, Andrew. It's good to be here. So, um, across the range of risks that our societies are facing, um, climate-related perils are are certainly on the increase, and we're seeing, you know, around the world. Things like floods that were once one in a hundred year or one in two hundred year events happening more and more frequently, and this is this is something that's global. It's affecting advanced economies and developing countries alike. Um, and so, I guess faced with that context, Julian, what what are the options for governments? Or, or to ask it a different way, what's the do nothing scenario? So if governments don't take action. Yeah, look, it's 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 a it's a fascinating conundrum that that governments are faced with because if you actually think about something like climate change, it's a truly existential risk, and we talk in the insurance and reinsurance industry about systemic risk or difficult to insure risk, uh, and here we are talking about existential risk. What happens if you don't engage in this? Is that you exacerbate the problem, and if the problem is big enough already, you can you can imagine for yourself what that means. But the alternative is to try and get out in front of it, to try and adapt to uh, the situation, and to try and mitigate the situation. So those are two different things in my mind. Often they're confused, but in my mind, mitigation is really. Um, reducing the impact of something. So the adaptation piece of it is the climate has already begun to change. And so how do we adapt to that? And that's not only, you know, how do we, um, uh, you know, build more you know, climate resilient, climate sustainable homes, but also how do we help farmers farm in, in their crops in, in different environments? Just this morning, listening to the news, talking about, you know, crops being, washed away by floods, the opposite with, with drought and excess heat uh, is also true. So how do we adapt to that? So adaptation, mitigation, why? 
because it leads to a more resilient society, more resilient economy, more resilient society, uh, so that you're actually prepared for these things. And so the shocks that they bring in, in the future aren't as great as they would if you didn't do either of those two things. Got it. And so, so in that and in, in creating these more resilient societies, what is the role of government? Why is government action sometimes required? Well, often these things are, are too big for the private sector, the reinsurance and insurance industries to do on their own. The problem is, is I think you're now starting to see things that are too big almost for government to do on their own. So yeah, just using the UK example, I think the uh, pandemic cost the government £400 billion sterling, so you know, half a billion dollars more or less. Um, sorry, $500 billion more or less. So now you've got a situation where it's too big for the private sector, it's too big for the government, and the government's choice is, do I work with the private sector? Do I invest time in understanding what the private sector can bring to help me manage this risk better? And some of that is the analytics that we do, some of it's the modeling we do, some of it's the risk financing that we're able to bring, some of it's the incentivization of risk mitigation and risk adaptation that I talked about, some of it's innovative financial products that we'll talk about in a moment. Um, and you know, we're going to talk a little bit later, I think, about a particular government that has really invested the time to understand the power of the private sector when we talk a little bit later about you know what the Ukrainian government's doing to reconstruct the country after the uh, the war has ended. So those are the sorts of that's the reason why the two need to work together. Public private partnership is very and I guess, powerful. And I guess the you know, the art and the science here is getting the balance right between those those two parties. And I imagine there's a there's a bit of both. Yeah. You're, you're absolutely right, art or science. I mean, what you want to avoid is that one party takes too much of the burden. So if the private sector takes too much of the burden, what you end up with is you know, the potential for insolvency in the insurance and reinsurance industry. That clearly is not good for society. You need a healthy insurance and reinsurance industry in order to ensure that they can protect against the many, many, many different risks that uh, businesses and society are faced with. On the other hand, what you don't is the private sector, let's say, cherry picking and sort of picking the risks that it wants to do and leaving uh, the really difficult uh, and costly events to the government. There needs to be a balance. Both parties need to shoulder the burden. Otherwise, it, you know, the other one will look at the, uh, the uh, one party will look at the other and say, you know, you're getting a better deal than me. And therefore, I'm, I'm going to take my toys away and walk away from this. And that is is also not in the interests of anybody. So, so let's look at this, I guess, as it's as it's applied to specific countries and um, some some governments who have created these public private partnerships to manage these growing protection gaps to drive drive enhanced resilience in practice. I mean, I live in live in the UK. I live in live in London. I'm glad we have a you know a decent tidal defence that's good for at least the next 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 couple of decades, um, and um, and so I'm I'm familiar somewhat familiar with floodery, um, and in fact at the event that that Guy Carpenter and Marshall McLennan hosted um, the other week, Andy Board, the CEO, 
um, was speaking on on the panel about about this very topic. Um, so, so I'm familiar with Floodry. Maybe we maybe we shift across the across the Atlantic um, and think about uh, think about the case in the US, where I know you found time in your busy schedule this year to testify to the US Congress on the flood protection gap in the US and perhaps ways that uh, ways that government and the private sector together could even in the context of the existing national flood insurance program nfip um take further steps or or make some changes to close the flood protection gap in that context could you share 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 with us some of some of what you shared with them i mean i think we talked a bit about public private partnership and of course if you look at the context in which a public private partnership. You mentioned Floodry. You mentioned the fact that I used to work Puri, uh, is formed. The problem is, is that the risk morphs, the risk changes. Thirty years ago, when when Puri was was formed, the risk was of uh, a, a lorry stack full of fertilizer that was exploded in front of the building to cause mass property damage. Today, the risk has morphed completely into, you know, beyond uh, even the sort of use of airplanes into buildings, as you saw in, in 9-11. You've seen, you know, trucks being driven down streets and mowing pedestrians down. You've seen cyber attack. Yeah, the, the, the threat has changed. Therefore, the public-private partnership must change. What I said in my testimony to to Congress was, you know, the NFIP is is actually a tremendous piece of of, of legislation, and, and and you know, if you look at FEMA, um, which which is divided into different parts, you know, part of it actually is about risk mitigation and how you mitigate the risk. If you look at the way FEMA six seven years ago, Guy Carpenter uh, was asked to place reinsurance with FEMA, so it actually started to share the risk into the private sector as opposed to keeping it all on the government. But like many public-private partnerships, the challenge is that if you think of the theory or the practice of of insurance, it's really about the premiums of the many paying for the losses of the few. And And the challenge that you've got in many parts of the world, I'm sitting here talking to you from Italy, where less than 2% of the population buy flood insurance. Um, it's more than that in America, but it's still a low percentage of people, private citizens that purchase flood insurance. And so if you're not getting the premium coming into the system, you haven't got the premium of the many to pay for the losses of the few. On the other side of things, you've also now got, it's not just the losses of the few, because the whole climate change debate is starting to impact more and more of us. And so actually vulnerable communities that live near uh, rivers where those rivers are bursting their banks, as you said in the introduction, with increased um, uh, severity. It's always vulnerable communities, whereas often vulnerable communities are the ones that suffer. And so the point about public-private partnership is it should be constantly evolving, constantly improving, with the knowledge of the private sector feeding into the public sector to design solutions that are uh, meeting the uh, the exigencies, if you like, of, of the day. And that's kind of what I was there to talk about and share experiences of international um, experiences. You talk about Floodry. Yeah, Floodry, if, you, if you're familiar with it, is essentially in the UK, every homeowner contributes £10 per year, $12 a year, 
to uh, the flood pool. And so that's almost like a socialization of risk, but it's a socialization of risk that still involves the private sector because they then use that money to purchase reinsurance. And so again, public-private partnership in a different format. Each one of these is formed in a different way, but the most successful ones are the ones where the public and the private work together in some fashion or another. And and Julian, I want to come on to... um... You mentioned vulnerable communities. I want to come on to a slightly different take on a public-private partnership um, where a vulnerable community themselves or with the support of an NGO have um, taken it upon themselves to to develop a solution to this. Um, Because so far we've been talking about kind of central government-led policy. But, But before that, and at risk of putting you in a difficult spot, you mentioned that you're sitting in Italy now. Like we've talked about floodery in the UK, we've talked about the NFIP in the US. I feel I feel better asking this question because I know that you have Italian heritage as well as um, as well as some English heritage in there. Um, so uh, so I will ask it. Why why does this exist in uh, in the UK? These sorts of structures, or in the US, um, and and many other countries around the world, you know, in Spain and elsewhere. Um, but not in Italy, and to maybe depersonalize it slightly um, you know, for one individual country. What, what are some of the reasons why governments um, governments might find it difficult or might choose not to go down this route? Why don't we see these, if they, if they work, why don't we see these organizations and these protection gap entities everywhere? Yeah, that's a really good question. And I'll, I'll try, I want to try and keep away from politics because yeah, the reality is, is there is an awful lot of politics when it comes to public-private partnership. You know, let's say a left-wing government might view intervention in a market differently to, let's say, a right-wing government. There's a view that perhaps if you if you make a a a a, a NAPCAT scheme mandatory, like it is in the UK, you're effectively taxing the, the 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 citizens. You're effectively imposing a tax on them, and no government likes to do that. However, I think. And you know this, the debate is now beginning to change where we're trying to explain to the Italian government, amongst others, that the way in which you design this can be done in such a way where it's voluntary, it's not mandatory. Uh, as long as you get a decent amount of take up, then you can still design a system that doesn't look like a taxation. But that ultimately, even if you don't do it, it is still a tax on the population because post-natural disaster, the only way the government has to respond is to raise taxes in order to pay for that natural disaster. And we saw that in the UK after the pandemic. You'll have seen that in many places around the world. So that's one of the reasons, Andrew, that, that, that these things aren't implemented. And it's about us as an insurance industry, us as Guy Carpenter, as a, as a broker, if you like, or as an advisor of clients, and us as Marshall McLennan, as a leading professional services firm, to be able to explain to governments and citizens alike why they should be wanting these pools, why they should participate in them. And it's incumbent on us to help the industry help design them so that they are designed in a way that works, not in an imperfect way. Okay, thank you. I said, Julian, I wanted to come back to your point on, um, on vulnerable communities. And also think about 
know, other innovations in this in this space beyond these these national protection gap entities that we've been talking about. One of the ones that came to mind is community based catastrophe insurance (CBCI), um, which colleague of our colleagues of ours have have worked on um, in 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 New York City. I wondered if you could just um, talk a little bit about that scheme, why it's innovative, how it's innovative, um, and and the way in which you think it might provide a model that could be scaled um, to solve these sorts of issues more broadly. Yeah, I think the innovation lies in a number of areas. One is you're not selling policies on an individual basis. You're going to a community. The clue's in the name, community-based. And you're selling, therefore, to a vulnerable community in a way that allows the protection of the entire community rather than relying on individuals to purchase a product. The quid quo pro for that is that it's cheaper as a community to buy but the quid quo pro is that that saving that is made is then reinvested into risk mitigation techniques. So how do you strengthen river defenses uh, by way of example in that particular example, which was a Guy Carpenter and Swiss rejoint venture in, uh, in New York. You're aware that we're working on other similar initiatives that are, are really based around the same philosophy of community-based protection marrying risk financing with risk mitigation. Um, and another example is the climate resilience bond. Um, and here, in fact, we've actually had colleagues from Mercer helping us uh, yep. by looking at finding investors, philanthropic investors, who might be prepared to take a lower rate of return on their bond because the bond money is then used to invest in climate resilience um, as opposed to uh, you know, commercial investors that want a higher rated return, and, and I guess that starts to get at, at, at you know the nub of of quite a lot of this, which is you know putting in place these resilience measures upstream in an anticipatory way costs money, and that and that money has to come from somewhere. So maybe maybe for those who haven't had the pleasure of reading reading the, the paper that you that you co wrote on this subject. Of um, climate disaster resilience bonds, maybe you just briefly set out in a bit more detail kind of the, the, the concept. And this was an example. This is uh, something that I, I worked on with an academic from a from a, a university, a climate specialist at university. And we were we were so frustrated that you know, as you know, first of all, the biggest challenge is getting money together. Yeah. Yeah. If you are a philanthropic donor, you tend to give the money after the event. Disaster has struck, you send a check to Pakistan. And that's, and that's how government you know, government overseas development agencies have worked for decades, but, but are increasingly trying to move, move away from. Yeah, and the, and the CRD, CRB was, was, a, it was designed to provide a tool to do that, to say, okay, I'm a vulnerable community. I know that I can stop my one in 10 year flooding by doing X, but I don't have the money to do X. Therefore, I'm going to go to a series of investors, some of whom will be uh, you know, ESG portfolios of investors, some of which might be uh, philanthropic investors, as I say, who are prepared to invest with a lower rate of return than they might otherwise. In the case of philanthropic, maybe zero rate of return. And the money that they put up for that bond is then used to finance 
the X, in other words, the, 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 the resiliency measure that you put in place so that when the loss happens, it's lower, the insurance is able to pay for that, and the coupon is then returned to uh, the investor at the end. Yep. Thanks. Conscious of time, Julian, um, and uh, you know, give, give, given, given the focus of this, of this series on COP, we've, we've understandably focused quite heavily on climate. I thought we would briefly deviate from that. Um, you know, we've already talked about the fact that before joining Marshall McLennan, you um, you worked on terror risk in your role at, at Pool Re. Um, but one of the topics that you and I and colleagues from uh, across Marshall McLennan have been working on over the last year uh, is um, is the risks associated with the war in Ukraine. Um, I, I wondered if you could um, say a bit more about the role of public-private partnerships in that context. Yeah, look, I mean, you and I were at the very beginning of that whole project, and I think one of the things that, that I often say is how impressed I am that uh, government officials in Ukraine, from, I think, the president down, have invested such an enormous amount of time and effort to understand the role and the power and the potential of reinsurance in solving that problem. Um, estimates are, you know, that it's going to cost somewhere between four hundred billion dollars to build, rebuild uh, Ukraine. That's an enormous amount of money, yeah, and and I suspect that I suspect that it's 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 gone up, you know, gone up even further from then. And I imagine when the World Bank World Bank do their next estimate, it will be um it will be another eye watering number on top of that. Yeah, and you know they quickly realised that they weren't going to be able to just generate that kind of that that amount of money. It's not going to be easy to generate it from investors who might want a shorter term return. And so they needed to harness the power of the insurance industry because nobody's going to invest that money unless they can get the corresponding insurance and reinsurance, whether that's property cover, whether it's political violence cover for the investors, or as you know, we've also been working on the shipment of grain while the war is ongoing. Um, and I think that to me has been a really impressive lesson to look at a government that was in the teeth of a crisis with seemingly no way out that was prepared to engage with us, engage with Marsh McLennan as a conduit to the reinsurance industry to find a solution that, frankly, I think even you and I probably at the beginning thought this is a, this is a tall order. Um, but I think actually we've produced two or three, if not four, concrete proposals uh, that are helping that country in a time of need. Yeah, and if I reflect on that work, and I think it mirrors the conversation we were just having on climate. I think two two ingredients that are key to success are both uh, are both you know the willingness of the private sector to innovate and lean into these issues, but also the political will to um, to collaborate with the private sector um, and to lean into these issues. Indeed, um, Julian, thank you for your time today. Um, on these really, really important issues. Uh, and thank you all for listening. If you'd like to learn more about Marsh McLennan's work and events at COP28, um, you should find links in the description. Thank you. Thank you.
Yeah.